The world is facing a leadership crisis. Not because there's not enough leaders. On the contrary, there are too many, and each with their own agenda. Society is being pulled into so many different directions. Liberals, conservatives, centrists, extremists. As a result, a disjointed country suffering the consequences of its own choices. It's Saturday, March 27th of 2021, and we are taking a look back at this past week where you soon might have up to four choices of vaccine as COVID forces more lockdowns. President Biden is finally allowed to address the press. The country mourns the tragic loss of 10 lives in the Colorado shooting and what role big tech plays in the future of our society. Welcome to Life Ring, a podcast where we strive to provide you with a well-rounded review of what is going on in the world between Monday and Friday of this past week. My name is Alex, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts, Paul and Vadim. Hey, hey. Hello. And, of course, in the background, we have our amazing engineers, uh, Dennis and Daniel, helping us run this whole thing smoothly. Fantastic engineers. How's your week? How's it been? Challenging, but we made it. I've actually went to a wedding this past Friday, um, the first like in-person wedding since really the like COVID yeah, yeah. thing has blown over. So that was exciting to see. Nice, yeah. I'm I'm looking forward to hunting season. I'm supposed to get started on my hunting ed, but I was gonna talk about it, but I didn't start it. So you're in for a treat. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, you went through it, right? Yeah. Yeah. My brother just finished it in like three days, I think. I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm excited about it. Well, let's let's take a look at what's new in the world this week. So our first of four stories is about pandemic. What's up with COVID? Now, COVID cases have been on their way down in the U.S. with a drastic drop since February. There is a decline nationally in deaths, hospitalizations, and in general, states are moving forward with expanding eligibility for vaccines, and a lot of these states are lifting restrictions. And so far, we have 18 states that don't have any mask mandates. That's like 36% of United States are allowing people to breathe freely when in public. So if you look uh, uh, you know, on the screen, we, we, have, we have a list of all of these you know, 18 states. And you know, when I looked at each, each of these 18 states, at the cases for those states, and every state over the past 30 days either had no growth in number of cases or seen a drop in as much as half. So like North Dakota, South Dakota, for example, they saw an uptick of 10%, 10, 15%. But you take all the other states, they were either the same with a slight drop or in some cases like Oklahoma, Georgia, South Carolina, and Texas, there was almost a 50% drop. So again, is there a correlation between masks, cases, it doesn't look like. Well, and if there is, it doesn't. It, it's probably not what we think it is. It seems like the, looking at this chart kind of makes me gives me a good feeling because confirmation bias in a sense. But I do think that statistics are we they've been shown to be so easily manipulated. So obviously, you know, less COVID cases is it because of less testing or because people right. are healthier or mm-hmm. because people are immune? Um, same thing with you know we were talking about mask mandates. Um, that doesn't mean that if you remove a mask mandate, it becomes illegal to wear a mask. We're going to start persecuting people that wear masks. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just not requiring people. It's it's, it's kind of putting the decision back 
because uh, the recommendation is still in place to wear it for all the yeah. states, I guess, right? Exactly. If you're vulnerable yeah. or if you want to protect others, then absolutely no problem with wearing a mask. Like in the last couple of weeks, even noticing in our state, usually there's at our local college, there was a um, COVID testing uh, facility, but now it's gone. So obviously if there's less COVID testing, then there's going to be less COVID cases because people don't like don't have as big of an opportunity or as big of a chance to take this COVID test. So I definitely think there there could be a lot of things that we're not considering um, in these statistics, but I de I'm definitely excited to see that more states are opening up and giving people the choice. You know, if you're paranoid, you want to wear a mask where you feel like that's the right thing to do, feel free. If you don't, then it's not mandated. Right. It should be a decision of every family, of every person, if you will. But, you know, and I think there's a lot of other factors that we're not obviously considering why the cases dropped and so on. Well, with Europe, things are a little bit different. In Europe, actually, cases have been going up. And by when I say up, it's not like the jobless claims that we talked about last week were up. <laughs> like that tick was nothing compared to what we're seeing in Europe. So they're almost on their way up to the same numbers that they would see like in February. So they had a dip through beginning of March, and now they're starting to rise. And it's like almost all of the European countries. I don't know what's going on in there, but it's it's different there. And so I decided to look at the countries and see, you know, how some of the most known countries are dealing with COVID. Because, you know, you hear about Europe, you hear about the protests that are going on. Uh, you also hear about the cases, but what are they doing? Mm -hmm. So here's a quick rundown of of those countries. This is according to a BBC article. We looked into some of these. Here's Germany, for example. They extended their uh, current restrictions until April 18th. So Germany, there was a big story because there was a five-day national lockdown planned. But as soon as the protesters hit the street, uh, like a day after the protest, the government was forced to announce that it's now canceled. They apologized that they kind of, I guess, didn't plan in advance enough this five-day lockdown, but it was canceled. Uh, the Germans, however, are still required to wear masks in public. Yeah, so the government of France also instituted new lockdowns. A third of the country is in full lockdown. You can't travel anywhere unless you fill out a form to explain why you're leaving your home. Uh, there's also a national curfew between 7 p.m. and 6 a.m., which, if you think about it, that's, that's half your day right there. Yep. Yeah, and so next we have Italy, um, and it's facing a total shutdown over Easter. Um, more than half the country is, like, in preparation, has already closed down the shops, the schools. And from April 3rd to 5th, which is Easter weekend, it will be in total shutdown. Big moves all over uh, the Europe. Denmark, for example, proposed a corona pass or Corona passes for anyone over the age of 15. They'll be available on paper, or you could download it as an app. And essentially shows whether you were vaccinated, where their previous infections, and when, and if you had any negative tests in the past 72 hours. Now, Denmark is saying if the situation allows in April, they might start slowly opening up. And so Greece also uh, looked, at, looked at these statistics and decided that they need to make some actions. So schools remain closed uh, since March 16th. And people are given a two-kilometer, which is a little bit over a mile radius, to shop for essentials. Otherwise, they have to stay at home. And curfews are in place uh, 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. on weekends and 7 p.m. to 5 a.m. On, on weekdays. So Czech Republic, once again, tightening its lockdowns, closing nursing homes, uh, closing school for young children and those with disabilities. There is also a ban between moving from one district to the other and uh, mandatory mass testing for employees at factories and companies that remain um, operational. In Spain, uh, they're continuing with its current curfew, which they had in place for a while until early May. So during this curfew, you can only go to work, school, 
or buy medicine or care for elderly people or children. And everybody six and older has to wear a mask in public. Belgium is also extending its lockdown until April 1st. So all non-essential travel is banned. Uh, one person maximum is allowed to visit your home. I believe there was there was more details about that. Like it has to be the same person. Or yeah, something. something like that. Yeah. Um, four people maximum outside in any given place. The schools and shops are open, but you must shop alone and only thirty minutes at a time. Uh, obviously, mask mandate. You have to wear them everywhere in public. Portugal uh, continues its state of emergency since January already till March thirty first. Uh, they are anticipating some easing of the measures uh, started in March fifteenth and. There's further reopening planned for April. Netherlands. Lockdown rules are extended until April 20th. Um, so now they've eased up on their curfew. Um, now it's an hour later, 10 p.m. to 4.30 a.m. No booking holidays abroad until at least middle of May. Um, teenagers and adults up to 27 years of age can play team sports outside, which is uh, <laughs> d- definitely a weird one. I mean, right. so after 27, you're basically, I don't know, different well, that's, in some... That's the risk somehow. line. Club yep. 27, is that what it's called? So. Yeah. <laughs> You're just too old at that point. But yeah, gatherings of more than two people are banned anyway. Uh, so Ireland is continuing at some of its highest levels of restrictions. It's level five, uh, the highest level. It will stay in place until April 5th. Uh, so you have to stay home except for travel, work, education, or exercise. You have to stay within a uh, five-kilometer radius uh, of your home. All leisure facilities are closed and restaurants are restricted to takeaway and delivery only. And Sweden, a country that awaited imposing rules since the beginning of the whole pandemic, as of January 10th this year, has this new emergency law that came into effect. And they're still relying, I believe, on people to comply with official health recommendations voluntarily. But now there's a line in place. And so shops, gyms are open, but like limit the number of people. They say maximum eight people are allowed to gather in public or private. Funerals are an exception with 20 people allowed. And then there's four people per table in restaurants until 8.30 p.m. And after that, you can only do takeaway orders. And so that's like a kind of an extensive rundown through some of the major countries. And if, as you listen to this, you know, you just wonder, is there rhyme or reason to any of this? I mean, everyone is just doing whatever they deem right. Two people here. The other country says four people max. The other one says eight. Is it one kilometer, three kilometers, or like in our case, is it three feet or six feet? Well, there's definitely a distinction that has to be made between uh, is are these guidelines or does the government have authority to enforce them? Because if they're actually enforcing some of these, you think about the logistics behind it. For example, in the Czech Republic, where you're you're not allowed to move between districts, mm. that would involve mm-hmm. a lot of implied powers, like uh, maybe tracking people's phones or something like that. Um, Having some posts set up, like, yeah, how do you, yeah, how do you ensure setting up posts, but also in a way that's effective and, and like you can't miss anybody mm-hmm. because discrimination, right? Um, and so it turns from helpful guidelines that are kind of silly uh, to extremely draconian and authoritarian practices. No, it's definitely eye-opening to see what Europe is doing because you look at some states in um, the United States and you see what the Biden administration is doing and you think they're you know, they're, they're recommending lockdowns and they're recommending mm-hmm. all these measures. And then you're like, wow, this is very radical, forcing us to stay at home. But then you look at Europe and they have these laws where, for instance, Netherlands stuck out to me. If you're o- over 27, you can't play team sports outside. Like, mm-hmm. once again, Vadim, how do they, 
what what mm. does a police officer come to a field and check IDs to see if you're up to 27? This is, I think it's definitely kind of silly, and I'm happy that I'm not living in Europe currently. Well, the Netherlands yeah. makes it easier because you can only have gatherings of two people. So, I mean, <laughs> the only sports you're interrupting is like a one-on-one basketball game. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's some of, some of it is is silly, but I get it. People are desperate to, you know. Mm. I guess return back to normal, and so that's what I mean is that there's a crisis in leadership right now because everybody's kind of pulling in different direction. Everybody's doing whatever they seem, you know, deem to be right. And last week we mentioned that in Europe they halted the AstraZeneca vaccine because of some block. There was concern of blood clotting. Well, also last week they released the estimate of the efficacy of this vaccine, which at that time was 79%. As of Wednesday. This past week, they updated the report to 76%. So it's 76% effective. Now, usually vaccines are what? Um, I, th- I think the other ones are like 95% effective. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess it's not always 100% effective. Makes sense. But in this case, it's even less effective than we expected. Anyways, this would be the fourth vaccine available to United States, to us. But it's likely that by the time it's approved, we won't need it anymore. And we're most likely just going to end up sharing it with the world. It's a easy to produce vaccine, doesn't require super cold storage like others. So, but here's what's funny. So the vaccine is so life-saving that it calls for next level of convincing for people to take it. So from people like Franklin Graham, who endorsed it last week, and this week he came out, I don't know if you guys seen it, but there was a tweet where he uh, came out to say that I think Jesus Christ would advocate for the COVID-19 vaccine. And it comes from the idea that, you know, helping another you know, caring for those around us. Anyways, so, so from Franklin Graham to companies like Krispy Kreme Donuts, there's offers of cash, gift cards, and other incentives. Check this out. So Krispy Kreme is promising you a donut every day for the rest of the year if you show up with the proof that you were vaccinated. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's quite a deal, right? There's free popcorn offered, free beer. In Michigan, there's a dispensary offering a free pre-roll joint to anyone 21... <laughs> and older who's been vaccinated. You know what this could be? It could be a normalization of carrying around your medical, uh, like your medical yeah. card, yeah, yeah, all, yeah. The, yeah, yeah. all the proof of vaccines, all that stuff. It's like, oh, well, you take it to Krispy Kreme. Why can't you show up at the border with it or something like that? Um, That's actually a good point, yeah. Yeah, and so other, other stores jumped on, you know, other employees and stores, like Kroger gives its employees $100 in-store credit. Publix promised $125. Big numbers. Um. As of today, 14.7% uh, of the population in U.S. are fully vaccinated. And according to Fauci, we can return to normal once we get to the 70, 85, 70 to 85% um, you know, vaccination. And with the current pace of 2.6 million doses per day, we should be at 75 in about four months. But I did notice yesterday evening that there was... White House reported a new record of 3.4 million doses administered in a single day. So that was yesterday, which is a big jump from 2.6. Maybe we'll get there faster, maybe three months, two months. Mm-hmm. But like I mentioned, be, you know, in the beginning, people are being pulled in so many directions with conflicting statements, ideas, rules, mandates, and it's just getting crazy. And people are getting tired of restrictions, of all these limitations, political moves. They just want to finally relax. And especially so in Florida, where this past week, uh, spring breakers broke loose like a dog that's been on a leash since March 2020. So um, we're playing here the clips, um, uh, you know, of what went down there. I mean, it, it was crazy. This one is filmed at night, you know, police pepper spraying um, 
all the people that gathered there. Um, these Miami Beach spring breakers made the headlines, not in a good way. Um, the partying that unfolded over the past week has been leaning into disorder and proved to be a challenge for the local police. And as a result, on Thursday, a local curfew of 8 p.m. was announced. And all of this was to keep the out-of-control parties down. Because so far, since February, the police have made over 1,000 arrests in, in Miami and confiscated more than 102 guns. Obviously, this is related to, to the pandemic because there's people that are sitting at home, they're locked up, they've been you know, told to self-quarantine, to try to um, limit as much like person-to-person interaction, mm-hmm. not go to stores with a bunch of people. You know, Even at one point, it said one person from a household go to the store, buy all the groceries right. for everyone else. So after that, I feel like this is, if lockdowns continue in the United States or if we keep pushing this... Um, you know, quarantine for longer, Mm -hmm. then I feel like more of these events are going to happen because people are just going to be done with it. They're just going to say, hey, we want life to come back to normal. And especially states like um, Florida and I feel like other states, they're going to be more of these cases rising up. Yep, I I just see it as, you know, young people reaching a breaking point. I mean, sure, an opportunity came up spring break, right? Happens every year. But in this case, it's just it went a step further because of how long they've been sitting Mm -hmm. in homes. And the effects of, you know, the drastic and sometimes unnecessary measures taken in the name of pandemic will continue to manifest itself in either outbursts of impatience, like in the case with spring breakers, or on the opposite side of the spectrum, an increase of depression, anxiety, and suicide rates that have gone up among teenagers uh, especially. So this week, CDC CDC released a recent study that showed a staggering increase This is a quote from their uh, release. Staggering increase in the number of emergency room visits attributed to depression, anxiety, and suicide attempts, as well as drug and opioid overdose between March or mid-March through October 2020. So going backwards. Now this, you know, this whole year and, and of COVID and the effects of it remind me of a, you know, car crash or collision where those involved, you know, realize what happened, and yet only after the shock wears off, you start mm-hmm. to discover, you know, the pain where you initially didn't notice any. And so it's been a year, and the results of this mass-scale experiment are going to continue to painfully surprise us, unfortunately. And yet there is something we can do. We can rise up to the challenge of leadership. And by that I mean in your home, in your family, in your church, in your community. Here's a story I heard from... John Maxwell recently. A man walks along the beach one morning after a storm has washed thousands of starfish ashore. As the man walks, he sees a boy at a distance, stooping down and doing something. When he gets closer, the man realizes the boy is picking up starfish one by one and throws them back into the water. Surprised by the boy's action, the man says to him, there are thousands of starfish stranded as far as the eye can see. What possible difference can it make? So the boy holds up a starfish he had just picked up and looks at it for a moment. Then he tosses it into the sea and replies, it makes a difference for this one. You can make a difference. We all can make a difference. And, you know, it really begins with caring for those around us. So I'm reading today, obviously, the news of, you know, suicide rates are up. Depression is up. But it's not like government is going to come in and solve that problem. It's really going to take all of us starting to be more attentive. You know, in the case with teenagers, as parents, as older siblings, as mentors, and as teachers, we can be there for them. I encourage, you know, um, everybody, everybody who's listening, let's pay, let's pay closer attention to those 
near us. Let's make sure that we communicate daily, often, that we model, uh, you know, healthy coping skills and ensure that kids, teens, those around us that all, you know, have the skills as well. Listen, support, pay attention, encourage and pray. And if you're somebody who's struggling and is going through a difficult time, uh, don't try to carry the weight all by yourself. Reach out to someone you know. Speak to someone about it. So long as we have a breath, there is hope in this world for all of us, no matter the circumstances. Well, switching gears, let's get into our second of four main stories of the week. So Biden is finally allowed to meet the press. So the people who run the country were finally ready enough to let the president of the United States, uh, Joe Biden, speak to the reporters. Now, I say it sarcastically, but, you know, one might draw a conclusion, you know, after listening to the, to the speech itself. Anyway, so after he had the whole week uh, to rehearse his response, 64 days after stepping into his role as the president of the United States, Biden came out with a notebook, stack of cards, papers that would uh, aid him to stay on track. And it almost worked. <laughs> in his opening remarks, Biden announced the new goal of 200 million vaccines in the first 100 days. And that's double the original goal. Well, let me remind you that the first 100 million was exactly the number that Trump ordered a year ago when he you know, said, we're going to make this happen. We're going to get the vaccine. And the president, of course, uh, highlighted that you know now you have uh, real money in your account. And he said, help is here and hope is on the way. And that according to his sources, forecasters are now predicting economic growth. I mean, things are going to explode going forward. And so he spent the rest of likely scripted responses on immigration, filibuster reform, voting rights, and foreign policy. So we're going to take a look, quick look at each one. And the first one is uh, the immigration, the crisis at the border. So now we have here, you know, uh, and you could probably Google these pictures online. There were some pictures released of the border detention facilities and what are they looking like right now now you know that the media has been blocking access for quite a while uh, or not the media but the government has not been allowing media inside biden spent most of the time with the press defending his bo first botched crisis that dominated his short tenures so far he's of course he of course said that the crisis of the border is number one trump's fault and that there's nothing unusual in this migrant surge and that he makes no apologies for undoing Trump's migration policies. So if you're following the news, the current state of things at the border is that in February alone, there was 100,000 migrants that crossed the southern border, and about 10% of them were unaccompanied minors. And the most recent photos that we saw, you know, there's kids tightly packed in detention facilities, sleeping on mats, on the floor with like these aluminum blankets. And so when Biden was pressed, on the transparency issue and letting the press, uh, you know, report to the people the extent of the crisis, here was his response. We've obviously been allowed to be inside one, but we haven't seen the facilities in which children are packed together to really give the American people a chance to see that. Will you commit to transparency on this issue? I will commit to transparency. And as soon as I am in a position to be able to implement what we're doing right now, and one thing like from this clip is that he never said like there's a follow up question that asked him, when will you allow these reporters? And mm -hmm. he's like, well, when it's the right time, why don't you let them in now to see what's happening? Um, you know, what one statistic that kind of um, blew me away about the border crisis is Biden 
was saying that the fact that this immigrant surge is coming, mm-hmm. it's like a seasonal thing. You know, it happens between January and March, and we see it in other years. And he mentioned the statistics where 31% under the Trump administration, there's thir- like an increase where people came up to the border. What he fails to mention, though, is how many people stayed um, and how many people were let into the mm-hmm. country. And so mm-hmm. from 2020, I believe there is somewhere between 20 and 30 people that were let into the country from the border mm. um, in 2021 in the last three months there was um, close to 10,000 people. It seems like on average they're peaking kind of April May uh, so we're uh, we have yet to see We've I think yet, the worst yeah. that yeah. the worst that this has to bring. All right well the next part that he talked about was the filibuster. Now you might or might not know what a filibuster is but it's showing up more and more in the news lately so let me let me tell you a bit about what I learned about what a filibuster is. So as the Senate glossary and they do have one, uh, of terms describes it. It's, it goes like this. A filibuster is an informal term for any attempt to block or delay Senate action on a bill or other matter by debating it at length, by offering numerous procedural motions, or by any other delaying or obstructive action. So basically, it's a way for a party to have two senators drag out the vote on a bill indefinitely because they disagree with it. Now, Biden in his press conference referred to the bill as a relic of the Jim Crow era. The reason they call it so is because in 1950s, a filibuster was used to block the Civil Rights Act from passing. And, and it this is took the bill a while. on voter rights, right? No, this is specifically on the whole practice of filibuster. So anyways, the filibuster, you know, although it's not a constitutional term, like it's not written in the Constitution, it's a process that was used by both sides. And yet recently, Obama and the progressive left, along with Biden, began criticizing filibuster because it doesn't work for them anymore. And, and you know, they would like to use the 50-50 Senate to their... Uh, advantage and so filibuster is in the way the funny thing is someone dug up a video of obama in 20 or in 2005 vigorously defending the filibuster because back then you know republicans wanted to change the rules so now that the power is in their hands they're calling it a racist relic so here's a uh, biden's remark on the filibuster filibuster so filibuster um you know with regard to the filibuster i believe we should go back to a position of the filibuster that existed just when I came to the United States Senate 120 years ago. Um, and that is that it used to be required for the filibuster, and I, I had a card on this, so I was going to give you the statistics, but you probably know them, uh, that it used to be that, uh, the, that well, from between 1917 and 1971, the filibuster existed. There were a total of 58 motions to break a filibuster. That whole time. Last year alone, there were five times that many. So it's being abused in a gigantic way. So who do you think is abusing it? Well, let's count the Republican, you know, how much of the Republicans used the filibuster last year. It was one time. And the Democrats, uh, 327 times. But, you know, who would check, you know, that if Biden and Obama are saying it's bad, so it must be. That, that's completely funny that, like, last year when they were... When they were using right. the filibuster, when they were implementing it, um, it was completely okay. But now this year, when the Republicans want to do it, mm-hmm. it's completely bad and it's racist. And, and I don't know what else they're going to call it, just so the media picks it up and says that this is the, the worst thing to happen to America in mm-hmm. the century. Yeah, it's really a dishonest emotional appeal, I think, to refer to Jim Crow era when you're talking about filibusters. I know that you can, I mean, if you want to trace it back, you can trace it back to Cato the Younger doing a famous filibuster in the Roman Senate. You know, it's uh, <laughs> to make the 
to make the claim that this is subconsciously, I guess, connecting in people's minds with Jim Crow is is completely dishonest mm-hmm. because that was that was a time when many things were happening. Um, another racist thing, bigger than Jim Crow. In fact, according to Biden, it's the size of Jim Eagle. <laughs> Get it, Jim Crow to Jim Eagle, big Jim, bird. Jim Albatross, <laughs> much bigger bird. Anyways, um, another despicable direction that Republicans are taking is this very anti-American voter ID requirement, meaning that it's despicable to require voters to show ID when they're voting. Now, Biden got very upset and angry over the fact that, you know, recently in Georgia, they cleaned up the law regarding the voting ID requirements. And so um, he's calling it again as racist as Jim Eagle. Which which Jim the Jim Crow era, right, was a set of laws that were set to segregate African-Americans. You know, it wasn't on a person's you know, belief or like political belief, what they thought, but it was literally on a person's skin. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. these like African-Americans couldn't do the same things or they were um, somehow stopped from doing the same thing as as, like white Americans were doing. So comparing racism to people wanting to make sure that our elections don't have fraud, just making that comparison is, I I think is too much. And we see a lot, a lot of the time in like woke culture and on Instagram and places we see people making comparisons to Nazi Germany where, Mm -hmm. Oh, this person said this, this is like what happened in like Nazi Germany, you know, and people are like, like making a big deal about it when realistically what is going on is nowhere near what was going on with Jim Crow laws and racism. Right. And it's, and it's not like that black people don't have IDs like, yeah. It's not a form of, you know, everybody should have an ID. Um, and everybody does in this country. I mean, to, to, to yes. just go about, you, you need an ID. And so to require that in the most defining moment of American politics when we vote for the president, I mean, come on. Come on, man. Uh, so when the time came <laughs> to foreign policy questions, Biden had to dig up a note and read from it. So this was, uh, you know, there wasn't anything special in that note either. So in response to North Korea who apparently continue to test their nuclear weapons. Here's what Biden said. I to ask you about foreign policy, Mr. President. Overnight, we learned that North Korea tested two ballistic missiles. What, if any, actions will you take, and what is your red line on North Korea? Let me say that, uh, number one, uh, UN Resolution 1718 was violated by those particular missiles that were tested, number one. We're consulting with our allies and partners, and uh, there will be uh, responses if they choose to escalate. Um, We will respond accordingly. But I'm also prepared uh, um, for some form of diplomacy, Um, but it has to be conditioned upon the end result of denuclearization. And that's where the note ended. (laughs) He's clearly reading it. And then once he's done, you could see the moment where he like finishes reading and then he looks up. He didn't look up a single time from that. The response is pathetic. But if you think about it, is there is there a bigger troll on the global scale than Kim Jong Un? (laughs) Like the fact that just the fact that it's sensationalized in our media, the threat that North Korea faces, whereas even if they are practicing nuclear missiles and testing them and all that stuff, their first target is not going to be the U.S. It's going to be South Korea. They're the ones that should be worried. Like, th- this is truly a test. And I feel like 
in my opinion, what happened is Kim Jong-un is launching these missiles and he's seeing how America is going to react. Because what Biden said is, oh, we talked with our allies, but they're not taking any steps. In a sense, he said, if this escalates further, then we're going to like take action on this. So right now, I feel like Kim Jong-un was looking at like, what is America going to do? Because Trump would have responded in a certain way that Biden would not. And so he's just kind of testing what he can do and what, what he can get away with, especially with, you know, what was brought up in this press conference on um, what happened in Alaska with China, you know, and just our foreign relations are just foreign policy is not the greatest at the moment all right well moving on biden is not planning to give up he is the oldest person ever elected as a president he will be 82 years old in <laughs> 2024 and here's his expectation have you decided whether you are going to run for re-election in 2024 you haven't set up a re-election campaign yet as your predecessor had by this time <laughs> my predecessor need to needed to <laughs> my predecessor Oh, God, I miss it. Uh, have you, have you? No, the answer is yes. My plan is to run for re-election. That's my expectation. You also just made some news by saying that you are going to run for re-election. I Do said you, that is my expectation. So is that a yes, that you are running for re-election? Look, I'm, I, I don't know where you guys come from, man. I've never been able to travel. I'm a great respecter of fate. I've never been able to plan four and a half, three and a half years ahead for certain. And if you, it, do, if you do run, will Vice President Harris be on your ticket? I would fully expect that to be the case. She's doing a great job. She's a great partner. She's a great partner. And do you believe you'll be running against former President Trump? Oh, come on. I don't even think about it. I don't have, I have no idea. I have no idea whether there'll be a Republican Party. Do you? I know you don't have to answer my question, but I mean, you know, do you? Uh, what? It's, <laughs> a, it's a little bit like visiting your senile grandpa in his retirement home. and. Mm -hmm asking him questions and kind of like no, putting no, words no. in his mouth almost. Um, but, you know, the thing is, is he allowed to say that he's not planning to re run for re-election? Because if you think about it, he's only 64 days in. If he says he's not planning on re-election now, he immediately becomes mm. a lame duck president. It's like, am I going to run? I don't know what's going to happen. Is there going to be a Republican Party? I don't know. It seems like a person in the position of a president of the United States should have at least like a five-year goal, a four-year goal, you know? Right. Because I feel like all of us at least try to know what we're going to go like in a year, in two, what, what we're planning on doing. Yeah, things might not work out, but you're supposed to plan for something. And if you don't, it just seems like, you know, that just uh, at, like the question can be asked is, who is, you know, who is planning all of this stuff? Is that if his you're team? Not yeah, if he's not, if he doesn't even care about the future, then does he care about now? Who is like taking care of everything that's going on in this country now, which seems like he's not really fully in control of what like his life is going to be. If we just look back a year where Trump was doing press conferences, there was no structure. There was no order where everyone in the, in the, you know, the news reporters were so calm. They, they wouldn't even chime in on anything. They would just read off their questions orderly. Biden had a list that he was going through. Um, looking at Trump's press conferences, there was shouting, there was yelling. If he didn't answer properly, um, there, there wouldn't be a, hey, all right, next reporter, next question. That reporter would be standing there and yelling at him, like, this was trying to, like, ask mm -hmm. him deep questions on, like, you know, no one even asked him. The biggest question, I feel like, among re Republicans 
um, is that his mental decline is like, is he even capable of running this country? And they didn't even address that. They didn't even ask him like, hey, there's this concern. What do you say about that? Who knows what's going to be in the future? And what baffled me, you know, is that the, close to the end, he said, I have no idea if there will be a Republican Party. He also talked about wanting to change the paradigm. And that program to change the paradigm, to change the thinking is already set in motion. Will it succeed? It will depend on you and me. As conservatives, will we become more informed, more aware, more proactive? Will we influence the next generation to value freedom and the truth on which the nation was built upon? So in conclusion, even the liberal media criticized Biden's first press conference. He lost track of thoughts occasionally, had to sort through his stack of cards a few times to find the proper statements that were written down for him. He's definitely showing signs of aging and possibly cognitive decline. And yet, he is the leader of our nation. Or is it Kamala? He doesn't know. Nobody knows for sure. And now we're heading into our lightning round where we take some of the biggest headlines on our cutting room floor and sort through them really quickly. So our first story has to do with a very big ship, uh, which is 220,000 tons and is a quarter of a mile long. That's blocking this all traffic in the Suez Canal. And so this blockage is costing $400 million per hour. And so the totals run between about $9.6 billion per day that it's blocking. And they're saying that, uh, so it's been stuck for about three days mm -hmm. uh, as of recording this. They're saying they can only get a tugboat on it, bring two tugboats to try and unblock it or pull it out of, mm -hmm. its, of the mm -hmm. position it's in. So it'll be stuck, who knows, days, weeks. Is it like sitting on the bottom? Is that what it is? It's like, like it wedged into the bank. So there was a big sandstorm. And so mm -hmm. I guess the whoever was steering lost Decided to go sideways. Well, <laughs> I see. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it obviously, like, the wind pushed it. Okay. Well, in the political news, uh, there were a few interesting stories. So, for example, Kristin Noem of uh, South Dakota, if I'm not mistaken, she was in support of this transgender bill that, was, that would ban transgender participation in girl sports. And all the way until it landed on her desk. And when it did land on her desk, she actually backed out of it. And there were two things, I guess, that she cited. Um, primarily that the NCCA, NCAA, which is a college sports organization, she was afraid of the backlash that might come financially, I guess, for her state, for her colleges. And so she actually ended up vetoing the mm -hmm. bill and sending it back to, uh, you know, for f basically for another round. And people were kind of upset about it because this is not the first time that this kind of bill was passed or proposed. Yeah, I do know that. Namely, there was a bill passed that's really similar to this in Missouri. Uh, it's kind of sad to see a lot of our political leaders that um, that are susceptible or vulnerable to getting kind of bullied uh, into doing, yep. into making actions by special interest groups like this. Uh, among other things, there's Trump, who announced that he is probably going to bring his own social media platform in two to three months from now. I, I heard the rumors about it, but it's still... For, from like a tech perspective, um, it's still, I wonder how that's going to be implemented because if you're still going to need to use like servers or you're still going to need to use some right. sort of like Microsoft or Amazon Free resources, mm. then that's that's still, you're still going to be a part of these big corporations unless they completely diverge where they have to get their own warehouses, they have to get their own Build servers, their own, their infrastructure. own like infrastructure, it's which huge. is... It, yeah, it's going to be a big project. So our next story is uh, has to do with the Spanish government passing new laws uh, that have to do with euthanasia and assisted suicides. So uh, the vote went 202 in favor and uh, 141 against. 
there are some caveats to it. Doctors are permitted to give lethal injections to patients uh, that have incurable diseases and cause intolerable suffering. So there's some guidelines in place, but they seem a little bit subjective. Yeah, it definitely seems a little bit ambiguous. There's If there's no direct laws, or th- there's no direct rule where it's like only people that have this or only people who are diagnosed with this can like, or like with some uh, incurable disease, you know, can get this... Um, you know, assisted suicide, because I feel like some people could come in and where the guidelines stand, like if someone comes in and says, I have depression or I have a mental illness or like so some disease like that, and um, I, I would like an assisted suicide. So there's definitely some caveats that um, I think need to be addressed. Um, in other news, uh, Columbian University accused of segregation with six different graduation ceremonies. So to dive a little bit into this story, Columbia University, for those of you that don't know, is an Ivy League institution in New York City. So it's a pretty big, well-known university. Where So they're going to have a Native graduation, Native Americans. So And then the next day, they're going to have a Lavender, what they call it, graduation, which is Lavender. LGBTG plus graduation. Then the next day, they're going to have an Asian and lower income graduation, mm-hmm. and then Latinx graduation the next day, and then black graduation the day after that. So six different graduations for six different groups. So now, of course, this was a controversy. People automatically, you know, on Instagram and on news, they started calling this out. The, the university responded with this, where they said, this, there's still a main graduation, that everyone is allowed to go to, everyone is welcome to go to. These are just little subsections where, like, people are more broken down into groups. And, you know, being a university graduate myself, it's, I just wonder why those specific groups. It really does seem like we've come full circle with segregation and then integration and then, I don't know what you would call this, ironic segregation. (laughs) Well, interesting, the New York Times had an article titled, Colleges Celebrate Diversity with Separate Commencement. So I'm reading this uh, blacksphere.net article, and it says, did you catch it? Celebrate. What a manipulation of the word celebrate. Basically, they're using the word, you know, celebrate to sell this empowerment ideology, and they say black students are eating it up. Our next story has to do with the government of Florida passing a bill that would... Well, actually, it's it's a bill that's already kind of existed, but they made amendments to it. So SB 86 is a bill that basically allows the board of directors of universities to choose which programs are on a list that gets uh, that gets subsidized by the government, basically. So they credit 60, uh, 60 quarter hours uh, to certain degrees. Uh, if And so this is good, obviously, because students need to be encouraged to choose career paths and taxpayers mm-hmm. should have a say in uh, in what they sponsor. Uh, but so this amendment added a, another list where which exempts uh, or specifically does not support uh, is not supported by this program. So a lot of these are actually a are actually liberal arts degrees. And so in a sense, it's good because uh, because we don't want people to be choosing useless degrees and using taxpayer money. Um, On the other hand, it's a dangerous precedent because there's a board of directors that chooses. Presumably, they can alter that list kind of to their own discretion. So another headline is U.S. unemployment claims sinks to 684,000 and hit lowest level since pandemic. So this is the graph that is shown. Um, It is a little bit funky that may 
like is already portrayed on there. I don't know what's going on with that since we haven't hit May yet, but you, we see that it's dropped below a million, so definitely good news in the country. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, the states opening up. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Texas, Florida, they're lifting their mask mandates there. You know, more people could gather. Restaurants are now opening up. This is definitely good news and seeing that economy is kind of like stabilizing. People are going to start talking about, okay, unemployment rates are dropping and they're going to um, attribute that to some success that the Biden administration had. But I truly think it's because of the states opening and now the economy is kind of like booming in that regard. Now in Oklahoma, there's a pastor of a church who recently went down to Mexico on a mission trip. He came back, was testifying how uh, God powerfully moved, you know, in their mission. And he preached his sermon last Sunday, like last week, on the topic of persecution, Christian persecution, that we as Christians will face some form of persecution in our life. Now, he urged people to be ready for that, you know, because it's a sign that God is working with us and, and you know, our faith grows through that and our faith, get, faith gets challenged through that. Well, he got killed in his home after this last sermon. And so the Christian world has been replaying uh, his sermon because it's an interesting one. You never know when, you know, you're going to say your last sermon. And so in his case, his last sermon was a very inspiring one. Unfortunately, he did get killed. And the story gets a little more darker than that. It was um, his wife and another man who she was sleeping with that they plotted actually to kill him. It's a terrible story, a terrible outcome. Um, I, I've got nothing to say more to that one. It's just horrible. Yeah, that's that's an awful story. But we do hope to learn more about it in the future and, and follow up. Another headline we had is that there's a bill proposed in California where it would disallow police officers to share their faith or their religious convictions mm-hmm. while they're on the job. And so this arose out of kind of a sensationalism, specifically the January 6th riots, as they're referred to, uh, at the Capitol, uh, that maybe the response from the law enforcement wasn't satisfactory to really crack down on it before it got out of hand. And maybe that's because the police uh, were expressing their their bias towards whatever the, the protesters were doing. And so this has serious impl- implications about uh, people of the Christian faith. Uh, this has implications for people who are of the Muslim faith. Uh, but it's also very kind of vague and opens up a whole new field of liability. So it goes not just in uh, using this as, you know, when they're hiring new people, but also going back to what people have said in the past. And so so mm-hmm. it talks about expressing religious or conservative beliefs. So it's talking about people that express uh, racist or homophobic uh, convictions, I guess, or opinions. Yeah. And so we know how, how vague and how kind of an umbrella term those things are. So in a bit of lighter news... Um, NASA's Mars helicopter Ingenuity could fly for the first time on April 8th. So um, as many of us know, the Perseverance rover, which was widely covered, um, landed on Mars on February 18th. Um, And so now NASA has a Mars helicopter, which is Ingenuity. Um, It landed on the... um, landed on Mars. And so April 8th, they're planning to make the descent. So first, it's going to take like six days for it to actually drop into Mars and to like for them to set everything up properly. But how cool is that? You know, I read there was an interesting case of Christians being up for space exploration because, well, God designed us to be explorers. Look, we 
we encourage exploring, right, of the planet that he created for us. We go discover new territories. We like to go to a place that's different than ours. And so, well, he created the whole universe. And so it's up, you know, if we have the means to explore the universe, that's that's a commendable goal. Now, another cool thing is that turns out the legs for the ingenuity were made like in my backyard. Like in my backyard, there's a company who actually did the, you know, the carbon fiber legs for the drone. And when I told that to my kids, I mean, that was that was pretty exciting. Well, and the last story for today is on Gen Z being concerned over remote work. So, you know, we've entered a new kind of era for tech workers. Well, and actually this affects not just tech workers, but many industries. A lot of people went remote, you know, and we're starting to say, oh, remote work is number one, nice. But number two, it's challenging because you do have to stay, you know, in communication with your team. And a lot of times doing that over the screen, you know, presents some some pretty significant challenges. And so what this article was saying is that Gen Z is struggling uh, to, I guess, adapt. Because a lot of them just straight out of college join the company and their first interaction is sitting in front of a computer. Again, they could relate to it in, you know, Zoom classes, I guess, for a year makes sense. But what they're saying is that it holds them back from uh, climbing the ladder, if you will. Or trying to, you know, uh, pick up a challenge and, you know, prove yourself and kind of move on to the next level, next level. And so a lot of them are feeling like this is holding them back in many ways. They don't see a future. They don't see a prospect. And they see that it's going to limit them more uh, than the benefits that they're receiving from working remotely. And a lot of them are single as well. So they're home by themselves throughout the whole day and then for the work. And, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. like you spend the whole day in your home. So effects of the pandemic. Well, that's it for our lightning stories for today. So moving on to the next story, um, moving on to the next segment. Congratulations. If you made it, give yourself a pat on the back. Um, So to introduce the story a little bit, it's about the shooter in Boulder, Colorado. I'm sure most of us have heard this story. It's been in the news. It's been in all the headlines. Uh, The suspect, 21-year-old Ahmad, um, I'm not going to try to pronounce the last name. He's from Arvada, Colorado. Um, He ended up going to uh, King Supers in Boulder, Colorado on Monday afternoon, and he um, opened fire. He killed 10 people, including a police officer whose name was Eric Talley. The part that stood out to me about this story is is that Ahmad was dealing with some mental issues. Although his friends and family described him as a normal person, um, he had some times where he would hallucinate. Reading up a little more on Ahmad, going back to his high school days, he when he was wrestling, a lot of his high school teammates said he was bipolar where he one second would be normal, happy, content, and then in the next second he would be very aggressive, very mad. So, And at one point um, during this, I guess, moment of rage, he got an assault charge where he got prosecuted for it because he ended mm. up um, hitting or beating another student. Clearly he had some mental issues and he had some things going wrong in that perspective. W- what do you guys think taking into consideration his like mental? Tragic story overall. I mean, the you know, for the family... For, for the families who lost their loved ones, I think to them it really won't matter at all whether this was a mental issue or not, right? So let's just get that straight. But in terms of, you know, why did he end up doing Well, I think most uh, murders, you know, there's some kind of mental breakdown that happens within a person to commit such a thing. So, but in his case, especially, as you point out, uh, his history, there was probably going so something was going on. There's there's propositions you can make to better vet people that 
um, that are trying to obtain weapons, like maybe bringing in a uh, bringing in somebody to testify of their character, or for example, that uh, maybe we'll talk a little bit more about red flags laws in these states. Um, there's a lot of different propositions, but at the same time, uh, there's kind of an outrage about uh, people that are selling guns and how they don't try to question the person buying guns with rigor, like, oh, are you, mm-hmm. do you hear voices? Or like a lot of them are, are really just not reasonable or practical. What about increased gun control? Would these checks actually do anything? So for, for example, if he was to go and commit murder anyway, would having an extra check preventing him from having an assault rifle, would that actually do anything? Yeah. And so that kind of, um, that question can be asked and would increased gun control be useful? So I think Biden definitely thinks so. He urged lawmakers to take action by banning assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. He said, um, and I quote, I don't need to wait another minute, let alone an hour, to take common-sense steps, which he meant by banning assault rifles and high-capacity magazines. So Mm -hmm. my question is, common sense? Is it really common sense? Is it really that simple? Common sense has to be common. Yeah, and so... You know, bringing up this next story of the dad of the officer who died in this shooting, uh, the officer's name was Eric Talley. And so his dad brought up a point from Eric Talley's life where he owned an AR-15, clearly was a proponent of the Second Amendment. And so his dad said, hey, it's kind of rude to talk about like gun laws on my son's grave, who was actually a proponent for the Second Amendment, for owning guns. And so clearly there is a different viewpoint out there. It's not so clear-cut in common sense like Biden makes it um, out to be. And so will banning assault rifles prevent others from going out and doing the same thing, Ahmad? Mm -hmm. Most mass Mm -hmm. shootings happen in gun-free zones. So will actually adding more gun control or telling someone they can't use an assault rifle stop them from going and um, committing what they were planning on doing? So in my opinion, I think it would actually go the other way, where this would actually stop right like citizens who are law-abiding to protect themselves. And I think this is actually more detrimental than beneficial. So a story to back that up is of 71-year-old Jack Wilson. And this story was mainstream um, a while back, but he was in Freeway Church of Christ, which is in Texas. And a gunman walked in, and he was about to open fire. So um, Jack Wilson was standing as a security guard. He pulled out his concealed carry, and he warned him a couple times, but um, the person wasn't complaining, so he ended up um, shooting him, and in this way, um, preventing a mass murder. The interesting part of this story is that the governor of Texas, actually, I think a week or two before he passed a law where he said now having a concealed carry in, in a place of worship is now legal. And so think about it this way. So if someone, if that law wasn't passed, if the governor would say now that is illegal um, to carry guns into a church, so who would actually not bring the gun? Would it be be a law-abiding citizen or would it be the mass murderer? So I think the mass murderer would still take certain steps to um, do what he needs to. And so I think this was proved by the... um, graph that I wanted to show, which is of actually the UK um, and uh, more specifically England and Wales. So what ended up happening is they um, they ended up banning uh, guns completely. Um, and this happened in 1997. Mm-hmm. And so the chart shows that within the next 10 years from 1997, um, some people say that there was an increase. This graph shows that it kind of like was stagnant. The um, amount of homicides or amount of violence, the amount of people murdered didn't really change. It might have decreased a little bit, but this is banning guns completely. So people who want to commit murder, people who want to do this, I don't think 
adding more gun control would help in this situation. So as a Christian, should you be for gun control? Should you be against it? Or maybe even the question could be asked, could, should you own a gun? Is that biblical? Yeah, you bring up some good points. Uh, I do think that a lot of the propositions that are under kind of this umbrella term of gun control, uh, they're kind of the best way to eliminate the possibility of somebody standing up to a mass shooter or someone who wants to uh, commit an assault on on a group of strangers, basically. Jesus said that uh, whoever lives by the sword will die by the sword. And so that kind of, uh, there's other perspectives you can take on that, but that is that is a direct quote. And so the idea is that if you take up arms, you should be expected to re- um, to have people respond in kind. And so we look at it also from uh, my family history and our overall Slavic history, people that lived through the, the terrible events of World War II, where the Nazis occupied all of Ukraine and went all the way across to Stalingrad, and then uh, the Soviet army pushed them all the way back. So civilians living in that time, if you were not conscripted to the army, uh, if you took up arms, that was a way for you to show that you had a dog in the fight. Uh, so, uh, you know, Nazis would punish people that supported the Soviet army when they were in occupation. You know, entire villages would be burned. Uh, people would be, uh, you know, pu- published in the public, executed. Um, mm-hmm. And same thing goes for uh, the Soviet army when they were coming back and they were like, oh, you were supporting the occupiers. Well, here's what you get mm-hmm. for that. Uh, so, in a way, the the best way to show that you uh, that you are not involved in uh, in the conflict that's happening was to be a conscientious objector and to not take up arms. Jesus also says to to the disciples, you know, how many swords you have, meaning you know, implying self defense, and they say two, and and he says, all right, that's enough. So, and again, the Bible in the New Testament speaks uh, a lot about government being placed by God as a way of of ensuring safety in the society and order, and so in that sense. Again, Bible is probably not going to be pro-gun or anti-gun. I think that the question is more a philosophical question, you know, which side do you want to take? Do you want to be the one who protects somebody? Or you might take the side and say that guns lead to violence in general, so we should just get rid of them. You guys bring up very good points and valid points that clearly there's two sides to it. And as a Christian and as a citizen of America, you have multiple options and kind of makes you scratch your head to think which is right. And, you know, looking at the situation with um, the Colorado shooter and um, recently the past week, the Atlanta shooter, both clearly had something wrong mentally with them. And these were Mm -hmm. big tragedies that happened. And I think promoting like some kind of mental check would have been seemingly beneficial. But then again, what would that what would increased gun control do? What would that extra mental, what what would that check do? What would, you know, banning assault rifles like the Biden administration said to do, would that actually bring a benefit or would that be a detriment to society? Because, you know, there's clearly law-abiding citizens who will follow these rules. But then again, mass murderers who are committing murder, who are going against the law, are they actually going to follow the law? If you ban guns completely, can they just go buy them on the legal market? And so, you know, it's more complicated. And as a Christian, I think it's complicated as well. Are we allowed to own a gun and kill people, or do we trust in God with protecting us from all harm? These are questions that are brought up, and I think ultimately what my opinion is is it depends on the person. So if you read the Bible, you pray about it, and you think owning a gun is good for you and it's good for protection, then go for it. If you read the Bible and you pray about it and you see that the 
like a gun could in a sense be detrimental to you. It, you could rely on your gun way too much. You could maybe use it out of anger or, you know, says something in that case, then don't get one. And so ultimately, though, what I what the main point that I wanted to make in this story is that there are two sides, conservative, liberal, the conservatives oftentimes say, and the viewpoint in anywhere that you read is Second Amendment, pro-Second Amendment, own a gun, get a gun, buy as much guns as you can. The liberal perspective is don't own a gun. Everyone who owns a gun is bad. They're, they're mass Promotes murderers. They're, mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they promote violence. And so I don't think it's as clear cut as that. And I think either if we read conservative news, either if we read liberal news, we have to ultimately scale it back, think about it in our own perspective, really dissect do we need a gun? And if we're Christian, pray about it. Ask, you know, God, read the Bible, see what God opens to us. In a sense, don't just take something for granted that's written in the news, but really think about it and go a level deeper and think about it yourself. And so I think that is the main point that we should take out of this. Yeah, there's definitely several perspectives you can take on it. Uh, Speaking of situations that are out of our control, but we would like to be, uh, the CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, and Google, uh, Zuckerberg, Dorsey, and Pichai, I believe is how it's pronounced, appeared before a House committee earlier this week. And so, as usual, the conversation revolved around Section 230 and changes that need to be made. Uh, Problem is, Democrats, Republicans, and these people themselves disagree on what moves need to be taken. Uh, So for the people that may not know, Section 230 was introduced kind of at the dawn of the Internet in 1996, which was a great year for many reasons, uh, Mm -hmm. protecting social media platforms from liability of what the users publish. Uh, Think of it as, like, for example, the editor of a newspaper would be liable for everything he published. Uh, These people Mm -hmm. would not be because they're giving people free reign, uh, Mm -hmm. in quotes. And so this bit of Section 230 seems like a really good deal. It doesn't reward or incentivize censorship or moderation, users get access to a convenient platform where they could express themselves, and the creators promote this image of kind of unfettered free speech, uh, so users trust and support them. Uh, There's a teensy little allowance for nuanced moderation uh, of content. And this platform, uh, if it considers it the content to be obscene, lewd, excessively violent, harassing, or, here's the kicker, otherwise objectionable, Mm-hmm. Um, and so it really leaves it up to the discretion of the platform to moderate what the users, uh, what the users uh, can publish, even if they're not directly liable. Well, for I, it. I think that the otherwise objectionable uh, becomes very subjective in the hands of whoever's now the judge of what what is otherwise objectionable, right? I think that you know in our time uh, social space became well social media space became kind of like a marketplace for us i mean we are partially living like with our leg in a or, or you know one step in the digital world and because of that it's a it's a place where people should you know be responsible for the content that they post and there should be some form of policing but the question is how far it goes because like you said the cancellations uh the banning uh, like recently when, when Trump got banned from Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. That would be a result of probably an overreach. I mean, this guy was still the active president of the United States. And, you know, there was a hearing about whether he incited violence or not. And even then, sure, a bunch of opinions. But in the end, he did not incite it likely because the connection is just too vague to make. And yet they made a huge policing call, which probably, you know, showed the world how this is more political than it is, you know, a con- like a safety concern of what people here at see online. And I also think that the news has got it down to a sci- science where they, they they know the exact timing 
when a new story is released or when an attack is made or when a ban is made and they know because their news cycle only lasts what like two three days and so mm -hmm. there would be times where someone is attacked a republican or about their beliefs and they're attacked on the news and then all of a sudden their twitter account gets banned mm -hmm. and it gets obviously um unbanned in like four days but then that's after the media cycle has went through and now no one really cares about the story anymore and this person was defamed and i know of a couple of stories that um do that there's also the case of steven crowder um he is a very popular youtuber and he streams live events for like um for the president election for example and so the in this past uh 2020 uh, 2021 election. So he was streaming on Facebook and right at, at the peak of the stream, Facebook banned him. Mm. And so now all of a sudden, a day later with no explanation, then banned him said, sorry, that was a mistake. But that timing of it where the most people were watching, where most people were interested in it, they banned him. And so now Steven Crowder is big enough to where he is, um, he could sue Facebook. And so that's what he's actually doing. Mm. He's going to a legal battle with them. Um, but yeah, I think definitely a lot of people have been affected by this. It's just that if we look at it from even a fact-checking perspective, um, you know, especially in relation to the elections, to the COVID, to the vaccine, uh, it, it seems like if we put it in the hands of the government to regulate that space, right, over the kind of information that is allowed to be shared, then it could have a political tint on it, you know, because, well, they're the ones in power and they're the ones who's going to dictate, you know, and it sort of, I guess, goes to the point, to the idea of thought policing. So here's the thing, uh, you know, you hear all these concerns and one is compelled to think, you know, so what? This is a service that's being provided to you. If you don't like the service you're getting, go get service from mm -hmm. somebody else. Well, the problem arises, and we'll show some data real quick about um, the monthly active users on YouTube. Uh, in the last, uh, ever since January 2012, it's been rising from 800 million to uh, over 2 billion as of two years ago. No. So I'm sure mm -hmm. it's much higher now. Uh, so the problems arise when these corporations grow so large that they effectively have a monopoly on, uh, on that particular kind of media. So these days people are especially isolated. This is their only connection with other human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, we're living, as you say, with one foot in the digital world. We're living vicariously. Uh, and so they will choose the platform that gives them the biggest audience, the biggest outreach potential. Uh, but we do know that uh, the old saying goes that absolute power corrupts absolutely. Yeah. And so even though Section 230 allows them uh, to uh, allows these media companies to kind of supersede the First Amendment, uh, where, uh, you know, the stuff you publish isn't necessarily... Uh, protected by the First Amendment uh, before it gets through Section 230, um, because it's on it's on the services that's provided by these corporations. But they still lack the transparency, and they present themselves as platform for free expression. Uh, we clearly see them taking license to censor and moderate conservative voices more and more aggressively, as you guys have uh, examples that you guys have brought up. So, is there alternatives that we can use? Um, I know, Alex, that you were involved in creating a social media platform. What are some of the biggest challenges you faced in, uh, in kind of battling these big uh, tech giants? Well, you know, the interesting thing. So first of all, that was a very long time. By very long time ago, I think it was 20, 2008, if I'm not mistaken. And I was uh, actually uh, working with a friend of mine who was leading this whole project, uh, starting a social network for the uh, Slavic Christians here in Washington to begin with, and then it spread a little wider. At the time, Facebook was just growing. I mean, we we were going essentially alongside Facebook. Our numbers were smaller, but we were 
you know, up there. And at that time, if we probably kept going, there were just some financial hurdles that came along, I guess, and uh, other changes that rerouted the platform. But I, I guess what what I can draw from there is that it's it's not that hard to make the platform itself. Uh, you you can you can start a you know from a template a social network today if you wanted to. The question is, who's going to join it, right? And uh, and where are you going to who, who's going to provide the services for you, right? Yep. Are you going to have that server space to accommodate for for those people? I think the biggest questions and concerns come come much later when the platform grows. Uh, now you have more interested parties looking into it, including the government, right? Uh, there's more responsibility now placed for your shoulder because you're essentially becoming a mini country of your own yeah. with the problems that come with every individual that joins your mini I country, think if you will. It's like I, I heard of the story of Trump trying to start his own mm -hmm. social media and... I think it's going to be a lot more difficult than it seems because, like you mentioned, it's really easy at the beginning to start something up, you know, um, uh, like have a web page, to throw throw some like cool features on there, maybe copy even one of the like main social medias. But then after, I feel like it's going to create a division because think about it now, if big tech still wants to censor you, they could prevent you from using their servers, which Microsoft and Amazon have the two biggest warehouses right now. So what are you going to do? You're going to build your own servers. You're going to start from the ground up. You're going to start building with your own technology, um, building your own social media, which that it's going to be a big effort. And think about it. These companies, big tech, they worked on this for years and years and mm -hmm. years. And so Will the best software developers go and jump on Trump's team or is there going to be a split or is this going to fail? You know, I feel like this is the best case to create something where it isn't moderated because the other thing that I can think of is maybe having the government go through and regulate um, free speech and tell these big um, tech companies and the social media to um, allow all voices and not have this um, voice. But then wouldn't that be, in a sense, giving all of your right to the government? Yeah, as well? it's uh, I really appreciate your guys' input on this. Um, I feel like, you know, our options are really limited as long as we're, uh, our demand for these services exists, uh, which I'm not calling for boycotting of the Internet in general or uh, anything like that, but we really do see big tech rising up almost at the same level as our government. They're duking it out between the Democratic and Republican parties. They have their own kind of ideas. Um, and so because this kind of naive law, uh, Section 230, the Internet was just getting started, it's kind of grandfathered in, and it leaves our complaints useless unless we pass legislation to control it. Um, but, you know, alternatives like uh, socializing outside of the Internet, uh, getting out there, opening up the country, how about that? Um, you know, attending church, you know, the, the fellowship that comes with being with other believers, people of a like mind, um, also getting out and meeting new people. Uh, all that stuff, you know, it's we get trapped in this in this sort of cycle of living vicariously, living in the digital world, and we see that it's uh, we're only giving up control of our lives to people that we don't even know and we can't trust their intentions. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, we hope that today's show helped you gain a perspective uh, on the past week, and we encourage you to share this show with someone you think might benefit from it just as much as you do? Here's an inspiring quote to help you take some action. Smallest deed is bigger than the biggest intention. If we want to influence those around us, we ought to move from the place of good intentions to a place of 
action. Do something that would drop a bit of good influence into someone's life. And remember, there is no better news on any given day than the good news of Jesus Christ coming to this earth to become the one true servant leader, an inspiration, but above all, a savior. We encourage you to seek him. If you haven't already, thank you for listening to Life Ring, and we'll see you next week.